Samuels chapter 4, starting at verse 2. Please stand for the reading of God's word. First Samuel deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. You may be seated. A grim story. In 1981, the movie The Raiders of the Lost Ark was released. How many have seen it? Oh, man, that's pretty good. Set in 1936, the protagonist, Indiana Jones, is given the job of finding the Ark of the Covenant, the protagonist of our story. His job is urgent because Hitler is looking for the Ark, believing its power will make his army invincible. And after a series of adventures, the bad guys end up in possession of the Ark, and they decide to open it. But when they do, it releases some angels of death who either melt or explode their heads. Indiana Jones ends up with the Ark and, of course, the girl. Um, now obviously not a documentary. But there once was a people who thought the presence of the Ark would make their armies invincible and whose mishandling of the Ark cost them their lives. The Ark of the Covenant makes its first appearance in the Bible in Exodus chapter 25. The fledging uh, nation of Israel has just received the terms by which they were to live under God's lordship, the Ten Commandments. They're also instructed to build a tent, the tabernacle, place of worship. And the first piece of furniture they are to build is the ark. This is the place where meetings with God would take place. This is a place that would physically represent the presence of God. If someone to was to ask Israel, where is your God? They would respond by pointing to the ark and saying, 
right over there where the ark was in the Holy of Holies. The ark, God said, is to be a hollow box about four feet long, two feet deep, two feet high. Had four rings, two on either side on the bottom. And it would be carried by poles through the rings. And the poles would remain on the rings because no hands were to touch the ark itself. No sinner would make contact with the ark, the presence of God. The lid of the ark was to resemble a seat. And two angelic beings, called cherubim, were to be fashioned of one piece with a seat and extending their wings as a kind of cover. And the seat was called the mercy seat. Some translate as the atonement cover. And the idea, God's idea, was that this would represent his throne, his presence, traveling with his people. And this would be the place where the high priest would meet with God on behalf of the people, interceding for the sins of the people. And the whole things, angels, lid, box, poles, Everything was to be overlaid with gold. It was housed in the tabernacle behind a curtain, and only the high priest, only once a year, would approach the ark, approach God, to atone for and seek mercy for the sins of the people. The ark was to be covered by the descendant of Aaron and carried by the Kohathite clan, the clan of Levites, whenever it had to be moved. But they must not touch the ark or look inside the ark, lest they die. And in this way, God symbolically represented the perfectly holy nature of God being necessarily separate, hidden from the eyes of sinful man. And so the ark became and was intended to be the most sacred thing in Israel. The most sacred object. That's the ark. And you can draw a straight line from the ark, like most things in the OT, from the ark to Jesus. The ark is a picture of Jesus. It points to Jesus. Jesus, and now where meeting with God, takes place. Jesus is a great high priest who stepped behind the veil approaches the mercy seat and pleads for and receives mercy on behalf of us sinners. Jesus is a basis on which God shows mercy. Jesus is a physical representation of the invisible God. If someone were to ask us, where is your God? We can point to the Jesus of Scripture and, they, and say, there he is. There are points to Jesus. That's what it's there for. So now we take up our story of the ark in 1 Samuel 4. A story in three movements. The ark and the Israelite army. The ark and the Philistines. And the ark and the priest. And in these three movements, the people learn that God cannot be manipulated. He cannot be overcome. And he cannot be treated lightly. So movement one, the Israelite army and the ark. What Josh read for us earlier. This movement begins with a battle scene. The Israelites versus the Philistines. And things don't, know, don't go well for the Israelites. 
in either battle A or battle B. In battle A, the Philistines clash with, with Israel in battle. And they totally outfight the Israelites. Okay, not a mere skirmish. This is a full out battle. And 4,000 Israelites fall on that day. The ground was littered with Israelite corpses. When the remaining army straggle back to their position with the devastating news, the elders of the people say, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Then someone had the brilliant idea of sending for the ark. If the ark is here, they think, that means God is here. And if God is here, he has to fight for us. And if God fights for us, we can't lose. Well, that part is true. If God fights for them, they can't lose. But the part about if God is here, he's got to fight for us. Is that so? And where the ark is, God has to be there. It's presumptuous, to say the least. The ark was a symbol of the presence of God. But the presence of God became so linked with the ark that eventually the people, or the elders of the people at least, thought that where the ark was, God had to be. And to be in possession of the ark was to have God at your beck and call. God on a leash to be turned loose on your enemies. To have the ark was to make your army invincible. But God cannot be manipulated. We have a word for that. It's called religion. It's one short step away from idolatry. Having your hope tied up in the object. Not the God to whom the object points. Religion is the assumption that God is both present and pleased with certain observances for their own sake. Religion says to the Israelites that regardless of whether or not you honor the Lord with your lives, he's on your side because you have the ark. Religion says to the Pharisees that as long as you sacrifice in the right way and at the right time, and if you know the scripture to the letter, that's all you need. So you don't actually seek God himself. And if he was standing before you, you might not recognize him. You might actually condemn him to death. Religion says, that, says to the 10th century crusaders that you can pillage and plunder, but that's okay. Because you're on your way to retake the holy city of Jerusalem in the name of God. Religion says that you can be believed, whatever your character, because you've sworn on a Bible. Religion says that Canada is a Christian country if you don't work on Sundays and you have the Lord's Prayer recited in the schools. Even if 90% of Canadians are not Christians. Religion says that God is pleased if we have a good service on Sunday, but even if we gossip on Sunday afternoons. Or that God thinks regular devotions are good, even if you don't seek God through scripture and prayer. Or that what God wants is for you to go to church, even if you don't contribute to the life and health of the community of faith. See, religion's just 
attaches Jesus' name to things. Acts chapter 19 tells a story from the ministry of Paul. Paul was in the city of Ephesus and had quite a ministry of healing. So seven sons of a priest tried to invoke the name of God, of Jesus whom Paul preaches, over a demon-possessed man. And the demon said, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? And he leaped on the seven men and beat them up till they ran from the house naked and bleeding. You can't just attach Jesus' name to things, and voila, you've got Christianity. You can't manipulate Jesus. We say that as a church, we will increasingly be a community that worships Jesus, period. No matter what he does or does not do for us. And we can only be a community of Christians who worship Jesus if we as individuals worship Jesus. But it's so easy for us to focus on the things that Jesus can do for us than on Jesus himself. Does Jesus heal? Then I'll follow him, providing he heals. Does Jesus protect? Then I'll follow him as long as nothing majorly bad happens to me. I love that hymn that the choir sang. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well with my soul. Religion says that it's the doing of the things, not the seeking of God, that matters. Religion says that it was, it's what Christ can do for me that is important. But God cannot be manipulated. Jesus cannot be manipulated. So please, let's not be like Israel. So Israel brings out the ark from Shiloh. And they send for the two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, those two pillars of integrity and righteousness, not as the guardians of the ark. And when the ark came to the camp, the army erupted into a thundering cheer. In battle B, they had to win. They had the ark. And the cheer was so deafening that the Philistines heard it in their camp, several kilometers away, and they were filled with fear. But it wasn't the fear that paralyzed. It was a fear that stirred them to action. Fight, men. Fight like never before. Take courage. We can do this. And so they did. In battle B, the Israelites were decimated by the Philistines. Absolutely routed. And there was a slaughter this time of about 30,000 Israelite soldiers. And the Philistines advanced probably to Shiloh itself. And Hophni and Phinehas died on that day in accordance with the word of the Lord. And the ark was captured by the enemy. And when news got back to Shiloh, the whole city panicked. And when Eli, the high priest and father of Hophni and Phinehas, was told that his sons had been killed and the ark had been captured, he fell off his chair in shock, broke his neck, and died. So trying to presume upon God, 
became a dark, dark day for Israel. Now the story moves to the Philistines, movement two. The Israelites have learned that God cannot be manipulated. Now the Philistines will learn that God cannot be conquered. He cannot be overcome. He cannot be overpowered. He's not just the God of Israel, but God in Philistia too. And he doesn't need any Israelites to prove his lordship. In that day, every nation had its own kind of patron deity. So a defeated enemy had an inferior god. And the conquering nation, their god was stronger. My god can beat up your god. And when the Philistine, the Israelites, god, into the temple of their god, Dagon, a god whose idol looks like a merman, half fish, half man's body. And while Ashdod sleeps, God and Dagon, Dagon go head to head. Even though Dagon has home ice advantage, he's no match for God. And in the morning when the Philistines enter the temple, Dagon is down for the count. He's lying down, face down before the ark of God. So assuming the janitor has been careless and knocked Dagon over, the Philistines set him up again, dust him off, and carry out their temple business. But when they get up the next morning, they find Dagon again lying down before the ark. And this time, though, his head and his hands have been cut off and lay on the threshold of the temple. It's like the Philistines' God is lying in the position of worship before the God of Israel. Then comes the judgment of God. Having demonstrated his victory over the God of the Philistines, now God takes on the Philistines themselves. And I love where the narrator of this story does with his play on words. The Lord's hand was heavy against the people of Ashdod. But Dagon is powerless because his hands have been cut off. God afflicted the people with tumors. He terrified them. And when they clued in that maybe it was the God of the ark, they hustled the ark over to another city, Gath, and tumors broke out there too. And they were seed with panic. So in a game of religious hot potato, they tried to hand off the ark one to another, And they say, finally, no way, we don't want the ark here. Take it anywhere else, but not here. The Bible says that a deathly panic struck the city of Ekron. People died, and those who didn't die were afflicted with tumors. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the hand of Dagon was powerless to help. And after seven months of this, The Philistines have had enough. Not only is the God of Israel too strong for them, it's not even close. Maybe they conquer the Israelites, but they are no match for their God. They may have taken the ark captive, but the God of Israel is not conquered. He is a victor by a long shot. And as proof that it is the God of Israel doing it, wherever the ark this symbol of the presence of God goes, the plague also goes. 
And rather than being manipulated, God sets the terms. The battle is entirely his. And the Philistines fold like a blanket. The book of Revelation, which we looked at last fall, tells the same story. God in Christ, demonstrating his absolute lordship over nations, over systems, over demons, over death, over his saints. Nothing can stand before the one who sits on the throne and before his son Jesus. Jesus doesn't need any help. In fact, he demonstrates his lordship on behalf of his saints, fighting for them. And he inflicts terror on his enemies, disease and death. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the lion, Aslan, the Christ figure in the book, is described as good, but not tame. Jesus is good, but not tame. He deals with wickedness and will one day deal finally with wickedness. But he won't just make it sit on the bench. He will destroy it. Anything that gets in the way of his final good plan for his creation and his people will be dealt with in wrath. Again, the devil and his funky systems, people and their refusal to surrender to his lordship, all will be judged, destroyed. And those who think they have conquered him will think again. Those who thought they had killed him Those systems and nations who suppress his name and who persecute those who bow the knee to Christ, who confess his name. Media, culture, governments, educational systems that seek to crowd him out. People who make no room for them in their lives. Jesus will demonstrate absolutely his lordship over them all. And one day, everyone will bow down. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He's good, but he's certainly, certainly not tame. He's both a lamb and a lion, to use Revelation's language. See, the gospel is not an invitation to be accepted or a gift to be received. The gospel is to be obeyed. And to refuse the gospel is an act of rebellion. And someday, Christ will do to the world what God gave a preview of in Philistia. He will judge. And for the Philistines, their only hope is to get this ark and the God who accompanies it back to Israel. And they put it on a cart and send it back to the town of Beth Shemesh. They make it as difficult as possible for the cart to travel so that they know that if it gets there, that it is certainly the Lord who has done this. They use two cows that had never pulled a cart before. They separate them from their calves. And they don't drive the cart. They just send it off. And it travels directly from Ekron to Beth Shemesh, about 10 kilometers, without turning to the right or to the left. And the Philistines follow the cart until it arrives, and breathing a huge sigh of relief, they mutter, good riddance, and go home. 
So our story, movement one, the ark and the army. Movement two, the ark in Philistia. And movement three, the ark back in Israel. People of Beth Shemesh were probably afraid to see the Philistines. But when the Philistines turn back and the ark approaches, they can't believe that the ark is back home. They immediately offer the cows as sacrifices. Now, Beth Shemesh, coincidentally, is a town where the Kohathites live. Remember the Kohathites? They were the ones charged with covering the ark, making it invisible. Their job was to keep it hidden so the eyes of sinful man might not look upon the throne of the holy God. They were not to touch it or look inside it. So what did they do? They put it on display and looked directly at it. And so what happens? The Lord strikes 70 of them dead. Now why does this happen? Isn't this punishment a little over the top? Well, it's not. I don't think we realize how offensive sin is to God, how much it violates his holiness. The reason God had all these rules in place around the ark, around his throne, was to drive home how offensive sin is to an infinitely perfect God. Sin cuts off absolutely the sinner from God. The ark was housed behind a veil and only one man could, could be could go behind the veil and approach God. And if sinful man ever bypassed these rules, God struck the people severely. Sinners are incinerated by God's holiness. So for the Kohathites to take lightly the law of God was to die. Seventy men died that day. So the Kohathites asked rightly, Who can stand before this holy God? Who indeed? So eventually they send the ark to the count of Kiriath-Jerim, another priestly town assigned to the descendant of Aaron. And they consecrate one of their number to care for the ark, and there it stays for 20 years. So the story of the ark in Israel and in Exile in Philistia and in Beth Shemesh and Kiriath Durim is the story of the God of Israel, of Philistia, and of the whole earth. God cannot be manipulated. God is not at your, at your beck and call just because you have the ark. God cannot be overpowered. To have the ark in your possession is not to have God under your thumb. God is not to be taken lightly. God is God. He's a glorious one. People are to place themselves under his beck and call. Not just Israel, but Philistines and even their God fall down and call him Lord. He is an infinitely powerful, infinitely holy one. So who could stand before this God? The Philistines couldn't. The Israelites couldn't. I can't. You can't. Who can stand? Only Jesus Christ. The sinless one. He can stand. 
Only Christ can be the priest who goes beyond the veil on behalf of sinful man, pleading for and receiving mercy. Only Christ is God's mercy seat through whom mercy and grace are offered to man. Only in Christ is there freedom from judgment. And we can obey his gospel or we can rebel against it. We were all separated from God because of our sin. We have all said that we, not God, are the lords of our lives. We were all parked firmly outside the veil, cut off. And that was as it should be. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world and died bearing the punishment for our sin. He made adequate, once for all, intercession for us before the mercy seat of God. And he rose. The Bible says that when he ascended again to the right hand of God, the place of majesty, he went behind the veil into the physical presence of God and is ready to receive all who are come to him and present them faultless, faultless before God. We had nothing to do with it. We had nothing to do with it. Jesus doesn't need us to demonstrate his lordship. And what can we do but stand with hands high and heart abandoned? Bowing to his lordship and receiving not judgment, but life. Jesus will not be manipulated. The very presence of God on earth is not something to be raided for our own ends. Jesus cannot be overcome. He will not be treated lightly. And the only right posture is to lie before his presence. It's worship. It's surrender. It's allegiance. It's love. It's adoration. It's joy. Because Jesus is the hero of this story, of our story, of the story of the world, of every story. Jesus is the hero. Amen. Amen. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun. Hymn number 246. And by this hymn, we, we acknowledge the lordship of Christ over all things. Let's stand to sing this together.
Jesus shall reign where the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall rise and rain no more. To him shall endless prayer be made and praise his throne to crown his head. His name like sweet perfume shall rise with every morning sacrifice.